Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast where we bring you the best music industry stories you've never heard. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this, my co-host, is Rick Martin. How are you doing, Rick? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, I think the first thing I've noticed this week is we've changed the intro after 35 episodes. Our tagline is no more. Uh, we used to hit rewind on the bands and scenes we love and now it's uh, we tell the best music industry stories you've, you've never heard. I mean... I suppose not that many people listen to tapes anyway anymore, do they, other than those kind of weirdos who celebrate Tape Store Day. So do you want to explain why why we've changed our intro? I know this is earth-shaking news. Yeah, well, just on the Tape Store Day, I actually saw a story on the news the other day that tape sales are going through the roof at the moment. I don't really, I think they've become a bit of a collector's item, haven't they? I don't think people necessarily buy them to play them, but there's a lot to be said about kind of the artwork that goes on um, and the creativity that goes on that isn't just about the music on on tapes but that's something I'd quite like to explore another time actually but in terms of our tagline I think yeah we're still very much kind of doing the the hit and rewind but I guess the remit of our podcast is expanding and you know we do want to talk to other people and you know not necessarily limit ourselves to just talking about the past um, and you know not even just talking to bands either we know some people in the music industry that aren't necessarily musicians but they also have really really interesting stories to tell that I'm bet you any money that you've never heard before so really well up for just kind of doing this and exploring a bit more yeah I know what you mean and let, let's see let's see how we kind of live with it let's see if it, if it's here to stay as our intro but yeah I liked it uh, well done Sarah um and I suppose this week although we're you know we've changed the intro it's probably more of a traditional demo tapes um episode in terms of speaking to a band about where it all started um as the second episode in our lost artists series so yeah this week we're going to be speaking to the manchester well sort of manchester band they're sort of from cornwall most of them but then moved to manchester a band called haven so yeah haven i mean it's a band if by my watch it looks like they've been split up for about 15 years doesn't it so if I'm being really, really honest, it's not a band that I'd really thought about much recently, if not in the last kind of five, ten years. So what's the reason for getting them on, Rick? I know this is one of the things that you wanted to do to kind of get them on to talk about, you know, how how it kind of they as a band kind of kickstarted your career as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, there's kind of two reasons that I wanted them on. I think number one, yes, I'll go into in a little bit more depth on how they are kind of part of my story and how they sort of help kickstart my music journalism career when I was kind of a fan of the band sort of in their beginning stages. But um, also they're reforming uh, this summer. Um, so they're reforming for a gig in uh, Manchester in, in July. So it's kind of quite timely from kind of a news point of view. There's going to be a bit of interest around them, certainly in Manchester, where I think they've still got a bit of a bit of a fan base and they're still quite fondly remembered. But yeah, also, I guess that uh, that personal connection. Yeah, definitely want to go into a bit more detail about that for sure. But before that, you know, given we've been away for a few weeks since the last episode, we've been in planning mode, um, which has been really fun. I know you wanted to talk about uh, new music, Rick, and specifically an album you've been pestering me to listen to literally every day for the last week. You've been like, have you listened to the Coral's new album yet? Coral Island, sending me songs to try and get me to listen to it. And I I actually did. Yeah, I did, Rick, yesterday. Um, I listened to it during work. And I want to know what you think, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay, yeah, sure. So yeah, this came out a couple of weeks back. And yeah, I think you saying me pestering you there, I've just become obsessed with it. Um, I think, you know, they're a band that I've been a fan of kind of since the beginning stages. Um, probably not an obsessive fan. They're one of those bands that bring out a pretty steady album of material every few years. But yeah, this to me is 
probably probably the best thing they they sort of ever done but it's also quite a unique sort of concept yeah and you probably want to explain that a little bit more because I'm still trying to get my head around it. You know, obviously lis- listening to it's one thing, but there's a whole kind of story and reason for existing in in another in another way, isn't there? Yeah. So I guess deep breath here. So it's a concept double album about a fictional seaside town, which I think is loosely based on kind of Blackpool or somewhere in kind of the northwest, which mixes kind of music with narration provided by uh, James Skelly, the singer's actual granddad, although he sounds like a professional voiceover artist. When I first heard it, I actually thought he was an actor who was in Game of Thrones, one of the, um, I can't which character he played now, one of the old guys in Game of Thrones. Um, and it's split into two albums uh, that sort of are supposed to tell the kind of two sides of the town, like kind of the winter and the summer of being in a seaside town and having lived in a seaside town a couple of times actually I kind of know what it's sort of getting about on that but um, I know that all sounds really unnecessarily complicated and it, it probably is but I think the thing that struck me the most about it is the songs are brilliant yes there's a story behind it yes there's narration but there's a couple of tracks on there my best friend being one and take me back to the summertime I just think of two of the best tracks the Coral I've ever done, just kind of brilliant, summery, psychedelic um, pop. But yeah, I'm interested in, in what you've made of it, Sarah, from as much of a mute from a musical point of view as kind of the concept. Yeah, it's funny. When you say concept double album, my mind automatically goes to, oh my God, this is going to be shit. Um, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, funny you say you think it's loosely based on Blackpool because I was sitting here thinking the same thing, actually, Uh, obviously, because that's probably the closest seaside town to where they're from in Liverpool. I think geography help me out if I'm wrong there. Yeah, yeah, you're Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Actually, because I've been spending a lot of time in a seaside town down in Brighton. That's what I was kind of thinking about. Well, they're definitely not talking about Brighton. (laughs) They might not be talking about Scarborough. Definitely not um, somewhere in Essex. Where's the where's the one in Essex? Can't remember. Um, But yeah. And also, I didn't know there was an accompanying book. So I'd be quite interested to read that because the story sounds, you know, it's really magical. And one of the things I was thinking is that it feels like an album that they could and maybe should have released about 15 years ago. But then again, I'm glad it's now because bands don't really release stuff like this anymore. Um, and I really wish that this would get some radio airplay. I very much doubt it will in the sense that they might have done kind of 15 odd years ago. Mm. Um I agree with you. I love Take Me Back to the Summertime. I love the honky tonk piano on that. Um, and it's just it's also got a bit of an air of Beck to it, I think. And another thing I was thinking is a bit of kind of badly drawn boy thrown in there. I love badly drawn boy. I don't know if you do, Rick. I've, I don't know if he's kind of one for you, but um, a couple of his albums I really love. Do I like it as much as the debut album, The Coral? I don't know. I don't think so. I think they've probably got different places uh, in my listening space for sure. But did I enjoy this? Absolutely. I think the thing with the Coral for me is there's just a timeless quality to their music. You know, they're never part. They've never been part of a scene. They never follow kind of the trends. You know, like you said, this could have been released 15 years ago. It could be released in 15 years time. And that's what I kind of like about them. They've kind of created their their own world. And yes, I think the music is unmistakably Coral, but they're trying to do something different you know with a with a kind of a double a double concept album a book you know there's a whole world that i think you can you can go and live in and maybe in these um in these troubled times that you know albums that you can go and live in for a bit maybe that's that's what people are drawn to and actually it's interesting you said about radio airplay because it's actually gone to number two in the charts so even though it's not getting a lot of 
airplay and i certainly haven't heard it on places like radio x particularly or you know clearly it's not going to get played on radio one but you know it's it's still resonating with music fans they're one of those bands i think that have a pretty hardcore following who who will you know who will propel it to, to number two in the charts without too much fanfare you know well well, yeah, I completely agree. And I think because they're, they're just such a good, solid band. Uh, just going back to, you know, you're saying taking you out of this world and particularly the time we're in at the moment. One of the songs, The Calico Girl, um, some of the, the lyrics in that um, were just really like kind of sweet. And the way that, that the way that the song, like the melody goes, it's but to be gay and free under my palm tree. I just thought that evokes memory, like really nice memories of, you know, those rose tinted days of, you know, the post-war times where everyone was kind of happy and sitting and a bit chilled and relaxed because times are kind of good. And it just that did transport me into into kind of a, 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 a parallel universe, I guess, to, to where we are now. And another one I wanted to say is Faceless Angel. What I loved about that song was that it was it re- reminded me of just being at a fairground. And I think the choral kind of are really good at creating that upbeat um you know, fairy tale world for you to kind of live in while you're listening to the album. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I guess it's one of those albums. I'm interested to know what our listeners think of it as well. Um, so I guess they could get in touch with us on social and we'll, we'll maybe go through some of those uh, those opinions on our next episode. So how do the listeners get in touch with us on social media, Sarah? Yeah, they can uh, they can tweet us or they can follow our Instagram at demo tapes pod. And we have personal ones, don't we? So I'm I am Sarah Jane Kemp on Instagram and Rick is Rick underscore J underscore Martin at Twitter. You can also email us demotapespod at gmail.com. Whew, that was a mouthful. I always get you to read these out because I could probably never remember it all. Well, I remember it now because you've got me to read them out every time. So, <laughs> so <laughs> they are firmly planted in my head. But anyway, we should probably get on to the main event of this episode, which is your interview with Haven. And this is part of our Lost Artist series. We started this a couple of episodes ago with Theoretical Girl. Uh, we should probably explain why Haven are considered, by demotapes anyway, a lost artist in the first place. So, Rick, do you want to tell us who they are and what's the story behind them? Yeah, so... Um... They're a band who formed in Cornwall originally, kind of in the late 90s. Then they moved to Manchester, um, sort of eventually. I think they probably got a bit big fish, small pond in terms of Cornwall. Um, and they got known as a Manchester band, even though only one of the sort of band members is in the band now is is from Manchester. And they sort of burned briefly and brightly. You know, I think that's always a theme of our Lost Artists series. Those bands that, you know, they were on top of the pops. They did big festivals. They toured Japan, the US. They got into the top. Uh, the top 30 with a couple of singles but then sort of disappeared and you always think well what happened to that band because you know they could have been they could have been bigger than they were you know and I think that that for me is kind of a theme of lost artists of you know a looking back on some of those bands that that burned briefly and brightly but then maybe what what could have become but as I, I think as I said earlier in the episode for me there's also a bit of a personal story with Haven. Yeah so wanted to just jump into that a bit more because we were talking off air and what I hadn't uh, sort of realised, you know, you've told me this story before, definitely, because we, you know, we've talked to you about how you got into music journalism in the first place quite a lot. Um, and if you hadn't have gone and seen this band kind of on a chance, you know, on a whim, right, um, with your dad when you were 16, you may never have got into music journalism, particularly at the NME. So 
tell us more about that because I find all this kind of stuff really fascinating. It's a bit like sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've definitely talked a little bit about. Was there an episode we did really early on in demo tapes about the music that made us and how we both got into music? But I guess when I got to kind of 13, 14, I think my first gig was when I was 13, I went to see Blur, and then I went to see, you know, Manic Street Preachers, Coldplay, um, mainly with my dad. I think the first gig I saw without my dad was Oasis in about sort of 2002. But yeah, um, my dad had a bit of a, a connection to one of the band members through someone at work. And, you know, you know what it's like when someone at work says, oh, you know, we've got, um, uh, you know, one of my, you know, my kids playing in a band, do you want to come to the gig? And that was what kind of spurred it, really. So I went to see them play it the night and day. I'm not sure if by this point they were signed, but you know, they were certainly kind of making a name for themselves on the Manchester gig circuit. And Manchester's always had that really good kind of local gig circuit, kind of like a sort of league table of venues that you sort of work your way through. And night and day, it's a really key one, you know, Dubs, Badly Drawn Boy, Elbow, uh, anyone who's anyone really of the indie scene in sort of the last 20, 25 years in Manchester came through the night and day. So yeah, I went to go and see them. This must have been 2001 2002 time um it was coincidental because i was an obsessive enemy reader in these days i've been reading enemy since i was about 13 and i'd always kind of had it in the back of my mind that i'd want to work for enemy i just kind of kind of quite worked out how i was going to do that and there was an ad in one of the issues where they said we're looking for new writers uh, and this is the ad that Tim Jones, who was a famous enemy journo, answered James McMahon, I think Chrissy Muris, and like some of the big hitters of the kind of 10, 15 years that followed, answered. I also answered this ad, and I'd never reviewed a gig before, so I went off to Haven, wrote a review, printed it out on my computer, put it in an envelope, sent it into the office with my name on number on the back, and um, yeah, got a call back. So as mad as that sounds, and this was probably far more about luck than ability, because that review wasn't particularly great. I can't, I've still not got it anywhere, but I can still remember most of what I wrote. Um, the first thing I ever wrote for NME, which was of Haven, got me uh, kind of my freelance gig at the NME. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? I mean, I love the way you can still remember it. Of course you can, because you're Rick Rainman Martin in the music, in music sense. Uh, but I think, why do you, you know, one of the things you just said there, luck rather than ability, that can't be in the case because... They must have received so many entries because of that article. Because, if you know, back then it was the place to go for music fans. And they used to, I mean, do you, do you remember how many copies they used to sell back, back in those days? It's about 70,000, I think, around that point. Yeah, exactly. So can you imagine the kind of people that were reading at the time? I would actually be really interested to see how many entries they got. You know, it could be actually quite funny. It could have just been you three <laughs> and the guys you just mentioned. Um, and that's probably why I got the job. But, you know, probably not, Rick. Give yourself some credit. Well, I, th I think as well, I did speak to the guy who called me back to, to sort of offer me the, the freelance gig, a guy called James Oldham, who I probably owe most of my music journalism career to. And I said, what was it about that review that made me give me a call? He just said, to be honest, it was one of the few that just made sense. And I think where that came from was, I think, because I'd read Enemy so much. And, I, you know, I did a bit of media studies at college. You know, I was still at school, to be fair, when I wrote this review. That's probably the other detail I, I forgot to mention here was I was still um, I was still in a sort of elasticated tie and short trousers, you know. Um, <laughs> the, I, I think I'd studied, I'd almost studied Enemy as like a sort of discipline to the point that when I wrote a review, I just knew how to sort of mimic what I'd already read. So although it was the first review I'd, re I'd written, in reality, I'd had three or four years of uh, of training. And yeah, it, it was a really, 
kind of surreal experience, I suppose. I came home from school one day. I think I'd done like a GCSE mock exam. And my mum said, you had a call from uh, a guy from NME. I think you've won a competition or something. I think you think you've won like a record voucher and they want to send it to the right address. And I was like, oh, no, I've, I don't think I've entered any competitions. I wrote in and wanted to write for them. Because I, I, I then just kind of waited for him to call me back. I think I left it a couple of days. So, yeah, in terms of I think there was an element of luck in there. I do think with these things, there's plenty of talented people out there. And sometimes you just you just get your break and you sort of jump on it, you know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? But well done. And here we are now, uh, however many years later on your music, your very own music podcast. So great. Great to hear that. But just go back to the um, the kind of the music scene back in Manchester. One of the things I'm not going to spoil it, um, just kind of talking about this, but they mentioned Night and Day, which was kind of where it all started. I just wanted to, you know, another thing they do mention in the interview is is how they want they're really keen to keep these kind of small gig venues alive, because something we definitely talked about before on other episodes is that they seem to be disappearing at a really, really fast rate, which is really, really sad. And because there's, you know, nowhere to go for these kind of emerging musicians anymore. Like how, you know, t- how do, how do people get kind of spotted in the in the noise that is the internet and 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 things like that? So, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on how it was back in the day and and what you think about the fact that they're they're kind of disappearing now. Yeah, I think Manchester was a thriving music scene, and I think to be fair, Night and Day, for example, is still going strong it's still clinging on there's been a few venues and we talk about this in the interview you know Roadhouse being one uh, in Manchester that was kind of round the corner from from night and day that have closed so I think that the number of venues has shrunk um, but even thinking back to then it was such a hub you know I don't know how well you know Manchester but you know the northern quarter um, it's basically an area of, of sort of the city centre in Manchester where it was a bit run down and about sort of 25, I think even 30 years ago, I think it was started by Dry Bar, which was a venue that Factory Records and Tony Wilson opened as kind of, it was supposed to be like mimicking kind of European cafe culture where it's kind of a cafe in the day and then a bar at night and sort of night and day followed that sort of template. Um and it was just a real key venue. It wasn't 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 the best venue in terms of the space and the stage is a bit weird. The stage was kind of narrow and long. I think it still is. Um, but just a kind of a real hub, I guess, of of creativity. And you're right. You know, I think it's one of those venues that we really do have to defend. And actually, I say that um, another, I guess, mini story. I've got a mini anecdote on the night and day is around this time that I started writing for NME. I also tried to win the City Life, which was like the local listings magazine, Student Journalist of the Year. And I wrote a piece about uh, how why we had to defend the night and day because people, and this will sound mad, right? People moved in above the night and day, the flats, and tried to get it closed down because of the noise. Can you imagine <laughs> that? Moving in above a venue and complaining uh, there was noise from coming girls, from below. It. Yeah. And it did look under threat at one point that these these idiots who bought flats in the trendy northern quarter we're going to get it closed down. So I wrote this kind of impassioned kind of article where I got, you know, the great and the good of Manchester to give me quotes, not to be published, just for this competition um, about why we needed to save uh, the night and day. But yeah, it's it's still going strong. So it could still be going strong because of you, Rick. Again, well done. No, I'm not okay. taking credit for that one. <laughs> well, well, you know, you never know. Uh, the power of uh, power of persuasion in the press, Rick, you, we know it's true. Uh, but going back to Haven, you know, do you think, do you think there'll be a permanent reunion? Because I know they've touched on it a, a little bit in the interview, uh, but it'd be good, good to hear what you think. Difficult to say. I mean, well, let's not spoil what they say in the interview, but I, I think if the gig goes well, you know, I think maybe that will 
turn that that will maybe turn a few heads within the band i think well maybe there's more we can do here but um that's probably a really good point to go into the interview actually Let, let's kind of hear it in uh, in their own words so we've got yeah gary briggs who's the front man and the drummer jack on the line here so let, let's get them on So on the line, I've got Gary Briggs and uh, Jack Mitchell of the band Haven. Uh, and we're here to talk about the fact you're reunited for some gigs this summer. Um, now, to my knowledge, it's 10 years since you last reunited for a gig, which was for Jack's 30th birthday. And I know, Jack, it was your 40th recently. So is this yeah. just a thing to celebrate your birthday? Like, what's, what's going on? Well, yeah, do, do you know what? It's just a, you know, just, just, it's kind of a weird coincidence, really, that that's happened. Um, I think, you know, what it, what, what, you know, kind of kicked it off, and you know, Gary might say it differently, but basically, you know, we recorded between the senses 20 years ago this month, so you know, we just thought it'd just be a nice thing to do. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Uh, also, I think, I think as well, like strangely, um, and you know, absolutely not by design, that Jack, Ewan, and, and I sort of found ourselves living within. You know, less than a mile of each other, which is which is kind of really odd because whilst whilst we have been in touch sort of loosely, um, you know, since um, yeah, since we've we you know, I, I suppose the the wheels fell off if you want to call it that. You know, we yeah, we we, we yeah, we found ourselves sort of living within cl- close proximity, and I guess no differently to many people during the sort of year that we've all had, um, you do. I don't know. I feel like sort of connections find their way of reforming almost, if you know what I mean. I don't know if that's if you get my meaning there. Like it's almost as though, yeah, like you you have a, a bit of a I don't know. You 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 find each other again, or you find the people that matter again somehow when mm. when you're forced to be so far apart. I don't know if that if you get what I mean there, but yeah, so. Yeah, it's it's been it's been nice actually. It's been really lovely, like seeing and, and spending a bit more time with 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 the guys. And, and as Jack says, yeah, night, twenty years, yeah, twenty years. Yeah, doesn't seem that long ago. No, no. <laughs> and by my maths, it's been about sixteen years since you know, as you put it, the wheels fell off and 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 the band sort of split. So, I guess thinking about our listeners, there'll be some who remember you from back in the day, but maybe others who. 16 now so we won't have even been born when even you know you were releasing records so i'd like to ask you like how would you describe what what haven were and maybe what haven are now to someone who maybe hadn't heard heard the band because they're a young sort of music fan uh to know i was just to really hate this question you know when, when you're asked to sort of describe or or or, or 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 talk about kind of what it was i mean i think we were um i think we just kind of um let things unfold a little bit and and we all had a quite a, a range i think of, of bands and the music that we were really into we all came from quite different places really you know in every sense not sort of geographically but you know in terms of reference points growing up i don't know if you'd agree with that jack but it was a, it felt like yeah, a bit yeah, of a sort of, yeah. Yeah. of a melting pot really um you know we 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 but we all loved melody you know and we all loved um i suppose like classic songwriting you know um and, and i think i don't think we ever really had an agenda and i don't think we really ever had a sort of uh, you know this is this is i don't think we ever like wrote songs jack thinking this is the, this is the sort of record that we want to make i think we just kind of let it happen um, um yeah yeah not a helpful answer there no but that's right i don't, I don't think we ever you know we ever said listen let's let's write songs like 
you know, that, that are going to be this or they're going to be, you know, big on the radio or, you know, whatever. We just kind of enjoyed playing music. And at that time, we were kind of, we were, you know, you know, in the right place at the right time. There's a lot of great, great bands coming out <clears throat> at that, you know, time. So mm. we just enjoyed yeah. it. It was just, you know, yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. It's quite like, you know, looking back as well, you know, it, it was it wasn't easy then. That said, to get a record out, you know, it wasn't easy to get a record in the shops, you know, and not not detracting from anything that's gone on since or or, or whatever. But you know, like getting a record in Piccadilly Records was quite a big deal. You know, mm, you, you mm. couldn't just kind of do it. You know, it wasn't. You had to have the backing of a label. You had to have people that kind of believed in it and went along with it. So. Yeah, it was a it was a really lovely time. I mean, I I you know I think back such with such fond memories of night and day and you know and yeah. you know Oldham Street and the, really before the Northern Quarter is what it is now. You know, I mean that's mm. that to me is a really interesting reference point. You know, Northern Quarter was night and day, um, dry bar I think and maybe yeah. cord. You know, and that yeah. was the Northern yeah. Quarter. You know, um, not uh, no, it doesn't even compare to what it is now. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess we're naturally almost moving on to some topics I want to talk to in a bit more depth about a little later on. But I think one thing I wanted to pick up on there, as you said, the band were all from different places, you know, musically, but also, you know, I guess physically as well in terms of where you all grew up. So my understanding is, you know, most of the band had roots in Cornwall, but you're remembered as a Manchester band because there was that move from Cornwall. But the story I understand is that you met Nat in a record shop in mm. Penzance, which is about as far down into Cornwall mm. almost as you can get. So... Is, is that what happened or is that something you made up for the press at the time like what's what's the actual truth there yeah we we met in Cornwall I mean we I lived um I lived in St Ives we actually met we met in Penzance we were uh, um yeah we were we were at college um we had a shared love of music um and it was it was the it was a yeah it was an interesting point in time you know Cornwall Cornwall became a yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a strange place, Cornwall, because if you look at it now, you look at how Cornwall now is feels feels like a super super creative place, and there's a lot of great music, uh, not to mention art. I mean, it's all you know, Cornwall's always had a, a rich association with art, you know, and painting and and sculpture, but less perhaps less so for music. But actually, there's so much great music coming out of Cornwall now. But it was really unusual at the time. You know, I never came across anyone until I met Nat that was interested really in making music. And, and and you know um, it it was it just didn't feel that like that sort of place so that I think that was a that was something that um, that really sparked I think that sparked our friendship that we had a sort of yeah a shared a shared sort of interest I guess. And then you made the move to Manchester, which you know I guess I was interested in this in terms of you know with you being from Cornwall, the the world was kind of your oyster. You could have gone to London. You could have gone somewhere like Bristol. You could have gone, you know, Birmingham or Leeds or somewhere like that. So, what was it about Manchester in particular, other than maybe the premonition that you'd meet Jack and Jack would become your drummer, right? Like, what <laughs> what was it that drew drew you to the northwest? Well, I mean, look, it, it, I think plainly and simply meeting Joe Moss. You know, I mean, we we met um, Joe Joe Moss. Um, Joe Joe was on holiday in Cornwall and um, he. One of his old hippie friends, um, a, a, a woman called Helen, um, lived in the in the village that we were living in at the time, in in this little village, St Just, and she she kind of she sort of brokered the intro, I guess, um, and we met Joe, 
and um we just we just kind of stayed in touch you know um you know really naturally no pressure and this this kind of happened maybe over the space of like 12 months maybe even longer you know that we would just there'd be a phone call every now and then yeah actually i remember him coming to cornwall with um he brought jamie harding down with him um from marion and um who was like it, it was like an alien life form really if comparatively with the sorts of people that you would see day to day in the street in in you know in saint justin mm. um we just became really good friends and you know he you know he he he'd drop us a grateful dead record every now and then or he'd um he'd send a a a pack of hot rods um drumsticks down for for you know for tom who was playing drums with us at the time and he bought me my first guitar and it just became a sort of really good organic friendship and then um i think it got to the point where we we felt like we we had some songs and you know we i guess we wanted to kind of see if we could cut it in the big city i guess and joe was supportive of it and um yeah invited us to the north and we slept on his floor for quite a while and i guess as you say we we, we you know we, we we met the the wonderful jack mitchell and and you know and then away it went yeah but it's just going back back to that you know it's it's kind of hard to underestimate underestimate what a, a big move that was for those for those guys because if you especially if you go if you go to the village in Cornwall you know those guys were living you know is literally at the, at the end of the country so to to just up sticks and you know to move to Manchester it you know just showed how how you know you know you know that that was a big move you know it was a big move and you know the music was playing a big part in that move Oh yeah, I mean, I've done it in reverse. I live in Kent now, so I've kind of seen right. it from the other side of what happens if you move from mm. a cool place with a good yeah. music scene to <laughs> somewhere that's pretty culturally uh, barren. But I mean, I guess I'm here for for sort of other reasons. But Jack, yeah, you you joined after the band sort of came north. Do you remember yeah. how you met them? Am I right in thinking it was kind of an audition process? Like, how did it kind of come was, together? Yeah, well, it, it was actually through Joe, Joe Moss. Um, basically, I. We all, you know, we all, we all kind of, you know, as you know, Manchester music seems kind of a, a small, small circle. And I knew a guy called Phil Cunningham, who was a guitarist in the band Marion. And uh, basically, Phil just said to me, uh, you know, one day there's this band called Haven, and you know, they're, look, they're looking for a drummer. And it was, it, that's, you know, that was basically it, wasn't it, Gary? It was, yeah. You know, and yeah. It was, but you know what? It's like you know, um, it it was a, you know. I, mean, I, I think it, it all just came together beautifully, though. You know, because it, it, it's a you know, it it, it uh, the, the, the lad Tom Tom Lewis was playing John Lewis at the time, and it was all getting a bit heavy. And I remember, like, I think we I think we'd just done in the city, and um, all of a sudden, you know, you had like. It, lots of external um opinions and people you know who added a view on on what you what you needed to do differently and what you needed to do better and you know like that joe used to joe told us his tale about seymour stein and you know his, his, his pa holding an umbrella over his head whilst hmm. you know getting rained on it you know in the north right it's always raining but um meeting jack was like it, it, immediately everything just felt felt like fun again you know and it felt like actually okay this did we actually feel like we're enjoying playing music and he's a really musical drummer jack which you know might sound like an odd uh, an odd descriptive for you know for, for a drummer perhaps um but really musical and 
we just hit it off straight away. It just felt really natural. I mean, I remember I remember that first time we we played. We were in the um, this was before like night and day had rehearsal rooms, and and I think I think Jan eventually lived above the night and day actually. But we were mm. we were rehearsing in the space that I think became Jan's flat, you know, and that was what that was our place. Yeah. We, we shot a couple of videos in there actually, and it was really grimy and really dusty and <laughs> like, but really like, yeah, it just felt. I don't know, something brilliant about it. Uh, but I remember, yeah, I remember that first day, Jack's in the room, and it just felt like we'd been, it felt like he'd been with us forever. Um, you know, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. And also good, I guess, to have an authentic mank in the band if you're going to move up yeah. north. And I mean, particularly, you know, well, I say authentic mank, you're from Stockport and Cheetah Hume, Jack. So, <laughs> yeah. But to these guys, you're an authentic mank, you know. But Manchester can be a, uh, could be an intimidating place, probably even more so those days. So, you know, was that good that you had a, you had a local, kind of a local on board that knew what was what? Well, I don't know if Jack knew what was what. I still don't think he knows what's what. <laughs> no, yeah. but you know what? It, it was it was all it was all about. Um, I think I think we had that sort of like youthful naivety, you know, where you you felt you know when you you're younger anyway, you feel bulletproof anyway, don't you? You're not you're not you don't really have any like worries or concerns or, or you know um, we you know everyone that we met it was really cool, you know um, you know it was it definitely felt. Maybe it's an age thing, I don't know, but it felt different then, you know. I mean, everything changes, right? That's how it goes. But mm. um, I think definitely it was like, it was fun. And 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 actually, you know, Jack Jack brought a swagger to, I think, the music, you know, that that, that we didn't have before. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that's, a, that's a Northern thing, maybe. That kind of propulsive drumming, you mean, that you hear yeah. about a lot of the, the Haven tracks? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've mentioned Joe Moss a few times there, and I guess if listeners don't, I say the late great Joe Moss actually, because obviously he sadly passed away uh, a few years back. But you know, he was the guy who Johnny Marr basically credits with starting the Smiths. You know, legend goes that it was Joe who kind of put uh, the idea of Johnny knocking on Morris's door. I mean, how much of that is true? You know, always print the legend rather than the truth sometimes on these things. But yeah, what was that like working with someone? I guess who had, you know, he maybe wasn't the best known more broadly nationally but in Manchester he was very well known and you know someone who clearly brought the scene kind of together so you know what what were your memories of you know you've given a few memories there but are there any other things that stick in your mind about about working with Joe Moss? Yeah well I tell you what I I remember the I remember the very first time I met him and he was he was just he was one of those people that you know just had this kind of aura about him and he he just made you feel you know kind of made you feel really comfortable being around him and uh, but it's it's you know it's really hard to explain. But you just you know because when, when I first met him, obviously I didn't know you know didn't know the guys, I didn't know Joe. But you know, but there was just that's something about him that you know that you knew you were you were. I don't know. It just made you feel feel really comfortable and mm. welcome. You mm. know, but you also knew he's kind of a special guy mm. as well. So true. Joe Joe once said. That he didn't manage bands, he had love affairs, and I always thought that was such a a beautiful statement. And he, you know, he was he was really obsessive about music, and he was really obsessive about you know melody and like you know um, the the interplay between the listener and the and the and the and the artist. You know, not in a not in a sort of corny way, but he was really he you know he really if he believed in something, he believed in it, and you know um, I. I, I, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got ongoing love for that guy, you know, because he always told you the truth, and 
you know, you didn't always want to hear it, you know, but it's good. To, you know, I think I think if people, the important people in your life always tell you the truth, you know, and, and they do it for the right reasons, you know. And yeah, he's a he's a beautiful man and he's yeah, be sorely missed by us all because he certainly changed my life anyway. You know, and that, that much is true. And obviously through Joe, you got the residency at the Manchester Night and Day again, which you you kind of touched on before. So I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the Night and Day. You know, it was one of the places I used to hang out when I started going to gigs. You know, they'd let me in at 16 somehow. I'd even <laughs> sometimes get served on, on a good night. But I guess for anyone who's not been to Manchester or hasn't been to the Night and Day or it's been so long since lockdown, they've forgotten what it's like. Like, how would you describe uh, the Night and Day to someone? It's... Nine days like that sort of, you know, you know, like you're driving down a motorway and you see that one sort of like stubborn house that, that the motorway's gone around, you know, and there was mm. clearly a terrace before that, you know, and that person's gone, no, absolutely no way, I'm not budging, you know, and it's kind of, I feel like it's got that sort of spirit about it, you know, it's, I, I believe it's probably one of the last like small venues that's got. The, the amount of history that that um, that it has, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it it you know it champions the little guy. Um, it it sort of punches above its weight, but it's it's just a just a brilliant brilliant place to be. If it so a little, bit, I don't know. It just it a very very creative hub as well. Uh, you know, is what I remember it as. You know, there was always people there. You know, other musicians. Um, yeah, it was a magnet. I think for. Yeah, for, for creative people, I guess. Um, yeah. It sort of pioneered that sort of continental cafe culture, didn't it? In the day, it very much was a cafe. And then by night, you know, the screen went up and there was a stage, an oddly shaped stage, I sometimes thought, quite quite long and deep rather than wide. But I guess that was almost mm. like the charm of it, wasn't it? That if you especially, yeah. I guess when you were drumming, Jack, you were, you know... Yeah. Your bandmates were quite far in front of you, weren't they? They, they were, and it's you know I've got to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't always the best sound in there, <laughs> but it but it was just you know it was just so hot and you know you could just be on such a bus. And I remember it's a weird one because it, it, where I'm drumming, everyone was what you know kind of walking past me to go to the toilet, you know. Mm. So mm. I, I, people have either give me give me the V's or you know, <laughs> saying that I'm doing a good job. So you know it's yeah. a unique place, definitely. Yeah, really, really hot as well. You know, when that place oh, is really? full, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's hot. Um, it's a proper sweat yeah. down the wall yeah. sort of venue, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of other places that are like it, really. You know, and I I don't know that there's any other venue like it in Manchester that's that's kind of still, um, yeah, still kind of holding on. Um, to be honest, I don't know. And I guess at the time you emerged, so many bands seemed to come through that as almost like a rite of passage. You know, Elbow, Dubs played there, Badly Drawn Boy. Did it feel like you were part of a bit of a lineage at the time? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was a real... Yeah. There was, there, it, I think when Gary said before that it doesn't... You know, times have changed now. You know, I think he's right. When we, we used to go on the night and day uh, back then, it kind of... It really felt like we were, you know, kind of part of something or part mm. of something that was going to, you know, kind of beginning. Um, where yeah. you know, I don't know if it feels like that now. You know, maybe that's just because you know we're older, maybe. But um, yeah, you know, but like Gary said, you know, you could be in there in the day having a coffee. You know, you could be next to Guy Garvey, and um, you know, you could have, you know, just be having a chat with him. And then I remember Derek Derek Ryder is in there a lot. Sean Sean Ryder's dad. So you know, <laughs> he's just a real haven for even for you know for. <laughs> Yeah, no, it really was. 
I mean, we, we um, our, our first proper tour, I think, was was supporting Badly John Boy. You know, he just released Bewild- the Bewildered Beast record and he came into our the, the space that we were rehearsing in. Um, he really loved Till the End. It was a song that he, he just really liked. And, mm, mm. Um, and I think it's like, yeah, it's being there. You know, having that having that space, I, I think things would be really different because you know, like maybe the Roadhouse was was is kind of comparable, maybe you know, but you know, sadly didn't make it. You know, and this is what I mean about that sort of stubbornness. I think that you know, it's it's part of it's you know, I think it's part. I, I genuinely believe it's part of the sort of heritage of of, of Manchester, and I think you know, um, it, it people that listen to your podcast don't need reminding, I suppose, the importance of supporting these places and supporting these venues and mm, keeping mm. them alive, you know? Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, actually, Jan, who obviously set the, the venue up, you know, who also died kind of a, a few years ago. And again, you know, an absolute visionary for what the Northern Quarter could become, I think. So what were your memories of, you know, he, he obviously ran the venue and that's where you kind of, that's where your springboard was. So, yeah. you know, he seemed a bit of a character looking from the distance of where I was. So, yeah, what 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 are your memories of him? Well, <laughs> he was just you know he he was he was very stoned a lot of the time, but that that, that kind of made him this you know he was he, he was just so chilled out you know yeah. I don't think anyone else could run that that place like that you know yeah he was it, the guy was a total outlaw really I think you know and, and um. I, I mean, I was quite um, intimidated is the wrong word, but like maybe a bit wary of him at first when I first met him because he's really hard to read actually until you get to know him, and he is you know he's he's quite he's quite subtle I think in terms of his do you know what I mean Jack like the yeah, way yeah, he yeah. you know yeah. his expressions and the way he communicates um, yeah but when you get to know the guy he's just so warm you know it, he's, he had a you know he's yeah beautiful smile and I just I I spent um yeah spent many nights just kind of sat next to him on a stool you know it it would be like a Tuesday night at you know half past midnight um yeah you know we'd be drinking brandy and coffee and um I don't know what I'd be drinking but you know you just kind of yeah just hanging out with him he was just he just yeah he was just maybe it's a Dutch thing I don't know but just Mm, welcome mm. and like Yeah. yeah um yeah no uh no agenda you know um and what you know what a brilliant guy i mean look look at the you know look at the legacy look at the place look at look at everything that they did you know mm. um, yeah and and still going strong you know yeah. the people have tried yeah. to shut it down for 20 years 20 years or more because of you know complaints about the noise but like you say the roadhouse has gone and other venues have gone but yeah. this one seems seems to seems to hang on yeah yeah and this is what i mean about that stubbornness you know that that sort of yeah it's um it's a proper rock and roll venue, you know. Um, I think uh, maybe King Tut's maybe is like the only place actually. If you think about history and pedigree and stories and mythology, rock and roll, mm, mm. yeah, myths. It's probably the only place I think that you could you could parallel it with. Um, yeah. And I quite randomly saw some quite big bands there as well, like My Chemical Romance. I remember seeing there once, and you wouldn't you wouldn't associate American kind of uh, sort of emo punk with a venue like that, but that probably just showed you kind of the eclectic booking policy they had. So in terms of the night and day, you know, it was a springboard for you guys onto bigger and better, you know, bigger and better things. I said not to say better, but bigger things, certainly. Um, So, you know, you got signed not long after, I think you'd you'd moved to Manchester and you were sort of gigging there and then had a run of kind of singles. Then you hit the top 30 with, I guess, 
not was it your first proper single release or the second but till when you put till the end out again that was where i think you saw that kind of breakthrough in sort of 2002 so you know we're coming up to nearly 20 years from that from that now so what are your kind of your memories of that in terms of going onto the national stage from being a regional or you know a local kind of concern in manchester Do you know what? It's it's funny when it, you know it all you know, could happen really fast. If 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 you look at you know kind of how long you know we were doing we were doing what we were doing at the top level, it actually wasn't wasn't that long at all. And I I think I joined the band in January two thousand and one, and then you know literally that that year in two thousand one, you know we did the album, obviously recorded the album, and then we just toured and toured and toured. And then 2002, when the album actually came out, that's when we started to, you know, kind of get get things. That's when, you know, we started to put things out. We were getting in the in the charts. You know, that's you know when things really started to happen then for us. And when we, you know, we got to the top of the pops basically we till the end. And that, you know, that's that that was a dream for, for <laughs> well, it was a dream for me anyway. To, you know, yeah. as a kid, that was a program that we needed to be on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it, you know, it was, it was definitely, definitely felt like a big deal at the time. But I think it was all, you know, I, I think I kind of mentioned earlier that stuff sort of happened, and you know, there, there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a, a grand design. There wasn't really, a, you know, a, a sort of a, a message or, or, or anything beyond like, you know, we just, we just sort of loved experiencing what was kind of unfolding in front of us i guess um so what do i you know what what do i think about it in reflection i mean it's it's sort of interesting really i, I think um i think listening back some of some of the music kind of stands up you know there's things that you would you, you maybe think about and go and change and do differently um but it was um i think it's it's not really answering your question but you know um there's a there's a sort of barometer that 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 is presented to you that measures, I suppose, success and what success is and what success looks like, you know. And um, you know, I'm pretty happy with with what what happened and what we did. And yeah, um, I look back, I look back and smile, you know. I look back and yeah. smile. And obviously, Jack touched there on the fact you went on top of the pops, and you know, not a show that's on now. I think apart from a Christmas, but still, everyone remembers it as it was a massive. Oh, yeah. It was a massive thing to do, and like, what was it actually like being there? I understand the studio is a lot smaller than it looks on mm. TV, and you probably do a few takes. But what is it actually? You know, how would you describe now? Particularly, bands who could never go on it now because uh, it doesn't exist. I, I don't. You know, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember. Do you? Yeah, not really. It's kind of a blur. I mean, I think we we, we basically drove we, we drove down uh, to London in the morning, so we didn't we didn't have a hotel or anything that night. You know, we had to get up early. Um, you know, we got to a studio where, you know, um, you know, with a lot of artists that were probably looking at us thinking, well, you know, what are these guys doing here? You know, blah, mm. blah, blah. And then... Have they come um, to clean the dressing room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then we, we, did, we, we played live on it, which, which has always been, you know, quite rare. And I think we just did two takes, basically. And then we got back in the van and then back up to Manchester. Yeah. Joe always had... Yeah, Joe was at this thing with London, you know, you sort of get in and get out. That was his kind of vibe with it, you know. Um, yeah, so I don't, really, I don't remember it. I mean, it's, it, I like the fact that it's still kicking about, that, you, you know, you can find it on, on YouTube. I think it's nice to see that. 
yeah. How many times have you shown your kids the clip? Is it something you just do at Christmas or like <laughs> special occasions? Or <laughs> most days, yeah. me. <laughs> What's that, Jack? Most days. Most days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one's only a few years old or months old, right? Yeah, I, my, well, yeah, Jack's Jack's um, yeah. is a baby, well, isn't he, Clem? Nearly, yeah. yeah, nearly fourteen months. But even before that, I'd have Clem. I'd watch it every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine, mine is still too young. I mean, we 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 have said that it'd be really nice. I'd I'd quite like to, yeah, get the kids down to a sound check or something just so they can yeah, sort of have a little cool. listen. And yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, too young, too young to be um, to be yeah showboating yet and then obviously around this time you recorded your debut album between the censors um and i do i still remember now and i think i dug some of this out on the internet some of the kind of reports of what the studio sessions were like and even a title like between the censors probably gives you an idea it was a bit chemically uh, enhanced at, at points and johnny marr we should mention this johnny marr obviously produced it as well you know through kind of knowing him sort of through joe moss so again Again, based on what you said about Top of the Pops there, you, you, your answer might be, I don't remember much about it based on that. But is there anything you can pick out from yeah. from kind of the sessions and how they went? Making got. I remember them being, being, being very long, you know. We were long all, days. Really young. We, we'd get there yeah. about 11 in the morning and some nights we will finish till maybe 3, 4 in the morning, mm. you know, and we did that for a month, mm. yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and... It, I'm sure at one stage it used to the, the rest of the, the rest of the band used to come into the library and used to find me on the floor just trying to sleep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, do you know what though? I mean, I I, re I really remember that whole I remember that whole period really well, you know, because it was um, really creative and um, you know we had a lot of we had a lot of stuff and we had the, the you know the bones of everything, but a lot of a lot of what ended up on the record came, you know, kind of came about you know um whilst we were there um you know johnny johnny was a, a you know he's a he's a he's a uh, you know a beautiful beautiful human being but he's also a really he's really generous in terms of his support and how he kind of makes you he just makes you better and he and he do you know what i mean he, he makes you play better mm -hmm. um i remembered i was quite um it was daunting you know for me because there's a there's a fair bit of um my shoddy guitar playing on the record you know but you know nat and johnny both um you know exceptional guitar players so um you know i you know i really i really felt like i had to up my game a lot but nevertheless it was it was a really great yeah it's a really great time like jack says super intense you know i mean you it um the sessions were really long um but yeah, it felt really like a natural process, you know. Um, yeah. It was good. Yeah. And what were what were the, these weird crystals that Johnny Marr apparently brought into the studio? Oh, I don't know about that. No idea. No. I'd have to go. I'd have to go back and and uh, meditate and have a think. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that was the point of the crystals that you never remember what they actually yeah, were. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> And obviously the album went went kind of top 30, received kind of, um, you know, good reviews at the time. But was there a feeling at the time maybe that the label could have pushed it a bit further, you know, beyond that top 30? You know, you'd been on top of the pops, you'd had that national exposure. You know, I guess, again, thinking back now, 20 yeah, years on, do you? It, it was, I think it was actually really by design, you know, because the John, um, what's John's surname, Jack? You remember? John Chapman. 
John Chapman, yeah. John 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 Chapman that signed us was, you know, really championed us and really definitely believed in what we were doing. Um and um the whole kind of I think the whole guiding principle behind um the the label that he was wanting to build, obviously under the, the Virgin sort of stable as it were. I think he would he really wanted it to be um for everything to be sort of quite um yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It's a really, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those almost like uh, terms nowadays. But yeah, he very much wanted it to be for everything to sort of happen naturally and and not to be sort of this big like corporate like dragon slaying organization. They definitely, and I think that was part of the appeal. And you know, in the advice that Joe gave us at the time was because it it definitely had the sort of financial clout to to mean that you're you know, you weren't eating beans on toast every day, um, but you know they could they could get behind the record and they could back it and you could go on tour. So I think it it that I think that was probably by design with John. I think it was probably the second album that we felt could have they could have been a bit more behind it. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, I think um, we would I, I guess things were teed up nicely. I don't know. I'm just gonna say it's a natural it's a natural thing that we wanted you know we wanted it to be doing better. You know, we, we wanted the singles. You know, to be doing better, we, we always thought we we were, you know, we were kind of left off some some t- some English media as well. You know, we never got to, to do Jules Holland, which I always thought was a bit a bit strange. You know, um, mm. it was there was just little feelings like that sometimes. You, but mm. you know, there's there's not much you can do about you know those things really. You just have to get on and. But it was such a crowded market at the time, wasn't it? I think particularly for Brit- British guitar music, I mean, oh, guitar well, music sure. overall. You know, the Strokes had just emerged, the White Stripes, there was all the kind of hype around that. And then you had the Libertines as well. So it felt like, mm. to think, to compare mm. the music scene now to then, you know, at the one hand, it's exciting. At the other, like you said, not getting on Jules Holland. I mean, probably because yeah. they probably could have filled Jules Holland five times over at the time mm. with, with all the stuff that, that was coming out. So maybe it was right band and almost like wrong time in a weird sort of way because mm. of the competition that was around. Not that music is a competition. I was trying, you know, you guys as musicians don't see it as a competition. That's the business side. But ultimately, that's possibly what drives it, right? Mm, yeah. Do you know, I think as well that, that there was a, I think there was a, there was a bit of a kind of sea change maybe. Um, I remember like uh, there was a an enemy article. There was us. Cooper Temple Claws, the Coral, and there seemed to be a little point in time where actually there was a real focus on um, on on sort of um, homegrown bands, I guess. Um, you know, there was not a lot of travel going on, international travel going on at the time, and there was a lot of a lot of kind of American bands didn't make it over to play sort of UK festivals. So I think you know, like circumstance, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we. Yeah, quite content, you know, quite content. You mentioned there about international travel. Obviously, you guys got to do that as well. You know, I know you went to Japan. That was somewhere where you kind of possibly your second biggest following apart from the UK was was in Japan. So was that that quite, as someone who's never actually been to Japan, but has read a lot of reports of British bands going out there and having, you know, gangs of screaming kids running behind you sort of on on the street like Beatlemania almost. Like, what, what was that like? Well, it was. I, I remember when we got off the, the plane the very first time we, we went, and the, the, the jet lag when you get there is just like nothing else. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't have any time 
told to go to the hotel. We were straight into the, this this day of doing promo, and we're all I remember we sat there trying to keep our eyes open, and um, it was it was unbelievable. When we got you know when we finally got to the hotel, you know there's a load of fans there, and they'd come out to be a photo, and then within half an hour they'd have this photo back. You know it'd already been developed, and you know <laughs> it was just an amazing time. I think we actually went there about seven seven times in all. Hey, yeah, we did. So. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was brilliant. It was you know it was a really brilliant place to go. I mean, it was it was super intense, you know. And and we it was certainly unlike anything we'd experienced, you know, um, playing in in this country. Um, yeah, I mean, we've we 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 got to go so many times. I mean, some brilliant memories from that place. You know, Summer Sonic was a great festival we did. I remember we played just before PJ Harvey on the main stage at Fuji Rock. You know that was that was really great, and yeah, it was um, it was a brilliant time. And again, you know, like you were saying before, actually, you, Rick, there was a lot. There was a lot of really great music around at the time. So um, those Japanese festivals, I I, 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 I don't know. There was something brilliant about them. I think they were the, they do they do a festival really well in Japan. Yeah. 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 I guess the the other side of touring is that it probably. It maybe changes dynamics in bands, or it, it it maybe strains relationships or friendships. So, what what was it like when you were touring? You know, touring the world, touring places like Japan. Did that put pressure or strain on the band? Like, how or how did it did it change the dynamics in any way, or did it actually make you stronger? I mean, I, I don't think it, it it put any strain on us at all. We're having you know we're having such a good time. We were four young guys, you know, that, uh, that were getting to tour the world and to play music. And, Mm-hmm. There wasn't really any reason for you know for there to be any any strain really. I mean we, we were touring, you know we were touring a lot, but it wasn't like you know we weren't doing six three months here and three months there. It was you know it was a lot of touring, but you mm-hmm. know we we're young. We were you know we were just having a good laugh when we were doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think I think the like the, the the sort of long trip we did in America was a bit of an eye opener. Because, you know, up until that point, you know, it had been Japan, Europe, um, and it's quite a kind of, you know, European travel is still quite safe. And, you know, suddenly we found ourselves in America, I mean, on, on the first night, you know, and that got, um, you know, just beaten by a, a bouncer in Atlanta. You know, we were, we were, it was the first, it was an, the night before the tour started and we were guest DJs at this club. And um, I remember we were—I think I was playing a record at the time—and then you know we we all got told Nat was outside getting beaten up by the doorman, and we went out, and then that that was a bit of an eye opener. That tour was kind of, um, yeah. yeah, just mad, wasn't it, Jack? I mean, we had yeah, Willie Nelson's tour bus. It was like this really old school seventies <laughs> bus had an air, you know, <laughs> airbrush Bengal tiger on the side of it, and um, yeah, that was that was a. That was an interesting, in, interesting tour. Division of Laura Lee were 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 with us on that stretch. This um, were they Swedish, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was quite um quite intense. Um, but I think because, yeah, you know, I I think America's more of a challenge to understand than perhaps Japan. You know, um, you know, Japan it really is quite. I don't know, it's quite easy to sort of work out, if you know mm. what I mean. It's, it's mm. built on, it seems like one national like ideology, but America is just, yeah, it's like, it, it, it is the Wild West. Yeah. Uh, and there was, mm. there was also quite a big, a big difference in, obviously, you know, if, if we played in 
New York and LA, we were getting, you know, we we're getting decent crowds, but some of the, you know, places that, you know, that you've probably not heard of, there's there probably weren't getting many, many people there. You know, um, whereas, whereas when we were in Japan, it was like it sold out everywhere. Yeah. We, were ne we never played behind any chicken wire, though, did we? Like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and kind of through the tour, and then you moved into kind of your second album, All for a Reason, but that. Um, was delayed after your guitarist Nat did, uh, you know, he was ill, he had, he had Bell's palsy. And obviously he's not here to talk about it and it's his story to tell. But I'm almost interested in how you guys felt seeing, you know, a bandmate going through something like that, you know, and, and, and yeah, what, what your reaction to that sort of was. Because I guess, you know, as a fan of the band at the time, it, it sort of came out of nowhere. It's not the sort of thing you expect to hear of a young guy, a young guy having a condition like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 tough, isn't it? You know, because um, it it really does. Um, you know, it, it's not a vanity thing at all, but it you know it does impact your appearance, and you know when you're in a, 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 a sort of prominent position, almost, you know, and you're you're playing gigs, and so much about what you do relies on sort of confidence, and yeah, it was tough for him, you know. Um, yeah, it was really tough. Um, but he's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a sort of super resilient guy, and um, yeah, like you say, you know, it's kind of his, it's his, his story to tell. But you know, you, you never like to see any of your friends hurt, do you? No, yeah. no. And he, he really, ch I remember the amount of work he went through to, you know, to try and make things right. He, he, he got, he, he got this machine basically. Him stimulation nerves and, and he had to put that on every day and you know he had to sell and tape his eyes shut and it was like he just you know because he wanted to make things you know right for himself but also the band he you know he, he really wanted to get you know to get better and, and in terms of like the sessions did it did it you know when when I guess when something like that's happening, it's not to say that it's kind of derailing an album, but it probably adds a layer of complexity, doesn't it, to when you're trying to work on on an album like that. So did it did it affect? Did it? I mean, it clearly delayed the release, but how did it kind of fit in in terms of the recording? Did it come before or during? So you know, what what role did it play? I guess in in the conception of that album. I think it was just, was, it, was it just before Gary, and then and he. I think that was. Right, or it was it was kind of just after right. It was after. Yeah, it was after. Yeah, it, you know, it was after. I mean, you know that like, I, there's some there's some that might think there was a connection with that and and what happened in Atlanta. Um, and yeah, um, but it yeah it kind of happened afterwards. It sort of manifested itself uh, maybe in that way. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, it, it's um, you know it. it I don't think it derailed anything. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just a tough time for that, you know, um, a tough time for him. And you did give a nod earlier that maybe this was on this album, maybe the, from an industry point of view, from the business side, maybe it wasn't sort of handled right. I was listening back to this album again sort of today in preparation for this. And like, I think I'd almost forgotten how many great tracks there are, there are on this. There's four, five, six easily you could put out as as singles and some some stuff you did put out as singles but other stuff that that you didn't so you know again you know it ended up being your final album uh, and i know that you re i think you did record another album that didn't didn't get released but you know is there any is there any kind of regret looking back to think well 
could this have been you know you're the other musicians the business guys take care of the business but mm. you know the the things could have been if you know you you go through it what the door on the left rather than the door on the right and maybe things could could be could have been different with it you know it could have been that springboard to that next level yeah i mean i think i think it's maybe a sort of sign of the times you know um virgin i, I mean i might correct me if i'm wrong here jack but my memory of that period you know virgin um was um became part of emi i think and there was yeah, a lot of we were kind of part of part of hut and <clears throat> hut was part of virgin and i think we got a call basically that it's basically as soon as our album came out virgin were, were getting rid of hut and obviously we were on that was the you know part of the label that we were on so i think we moved on to the main virgin for you know for a while but you know basically mm. that didn't help us at all and mm. Yeah, that was just but, unfortunate timing. But I think you know, definitely, it's about allies, isn't it? And it's about people that that kind of like it, you know. Yeah. And you know, look, it's, I think it's easy to sort of, um, yeah, it's easy to sort of look back and think, oh, if 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 buts and maybes. Um, but like you say, you know, it's nice to hear that, um, you know, there's 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 music on there that's that's still sort of stacks up. You know, it's nice. It's always nice when when you, when you hear people. Yeah, talk about the, the music that you made in that way and I think you know what if, if we're all honest I think that's all that anyone really wants isn't it that you, you record something or write something that sort of translates to someone else mm. you know, I think that's, mm. that's that's what matters to me is there a track or tracks that you're most proud of across the two albums or even I guess the single that wasn't on it on the album of, of Tell Me mm. I think for me All For A Reason is one of my favourites of All For A Reason and so obviously Say Something as well I think I think I think even you know that as Gary said, it still still holds up that song. Mm. You know, and yeah. I'm, I'm amazed that you know that it's not been used in any films or <laughs> you know, any kind of TV adverts or you know. Hmm. Still time. <laughs> yeah. I think my I think keep on giving in is my favourite song. I think on between the senses. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. On uh, I do like. Um, I, I, you know, I like bits of "Don't Say a Word." I, there's a there's a couple of different versions of the second album as well that are kicking around, and I think somewhere between the two is a is a is a really good blend. Um, yeah, but yeah, keep on giving in. Um, I think one of my favourites. I think I was, I've been listening to the record quite a lot. Obviously, sort of trying to relearn the words and um, mm. learn the uh, learn the, the yeah the the guitar parts again and. It's been really interesting having a little listen back. That one to me, I'm really looking forward to playing that. And we talked about the label shenanigans just now and, you know, what happened with the merging and then obviously you're leaving the label. But was it a unanimous decision to split up at that point? You know, was was there any party that wanted to carry on and get another deal or was it actually you did want to go off? And we'll talk in a minute about the other things that you both went on to do because you had success and continue to have success outside the band. But, you know, was it a unanimous decision at the time that you were going to call it a day on Haven, it didn't. It didn't, it didn't seem that way, did it, Gary? I mean, we never no. sat down and said, "said right, that's it." We, we actually, we actually stayed to stayed together and did did write, as you mentioned, some some more songs, which mm. you know, which is essentially you know, the third album, and yeah. uh, we kind of demoed them in our in our rehearsal room. So we we always planned to you know to try and you know try and carry on. Yeah. It kind of it, it kind of crept away as 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 in the same way that think it sort of crept up almost. Mm. Um, there was yeah there was no big like um, 
yeah dividing up and um yeah, yeah. um it, it it just kind of yeah it just kind of yeah fade it was it was a gentle fade yeah that's <laughs> right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i sort of noticed that you did you know at least the band to it you know you kind of almost went off in pairs you know gary you and you and nat formed the strays and jack mm. you and you and went on tour with the mutineers so you know what i guess speaking to probably asking you sort of one after the other you know what what went into those projects and what did you were you trying to do something different i guess with the strays gary or you know what what was the thinking behind that as kind of your next mm. project um i think I think yeah maybe I, I I wanted to do something that made more of a racket I think um, and was a bit you know scruffier um, and I think also at that point I, I think I really appreciated the importance of the words at that point you know and it was definitely mm. that I didn't really I didn't didn't play guitar in strays and it was you know it was very much around like the the, the vocals and um, yeah, and I really, I really, I don't know, fell in love with writing words as opposed to the words being part of, just a part of the process that, that the songwriting was within Haven, if that makes sense, you know. Um, so it, gave, it was a bit of separation, I think. Um, and yeah, I just wanted something that, that made a bit more of a racket. And you also sang in free bass as well, which was this I did. mad, mad, <laughs> and I'm just going to mad, yeah. this mad idea of having Peter Hook, Manny, and Andy Rourke. It's like yeah. having like three fullbacks in the same football team. Or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. so like, yeah, it's like watching Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> but three very good full. Three one of the three of the best fullbacks in the world. Yeah. In, the, in the same team. Basically, our City play an attack now. They don't play a striker. They just play three midfielders. Maybe mm. maybe that's more the uh, the comparison. <laughs> yeah. So like you know what what was that like working with you know three of the biggest names in Manchester music you know before or since. Yeah, no, it was it was good. I mean, um, we've 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 always known Manny for we've known Manny for years. You know, we we when um, he he lived um, a couple of streets down from the flat that we lived in um, in Stockport. Um, you know, and he's always been, yeah, he's he's been he's always been around. You know, um, never never too far away. You know, from 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 us guys. Um, so that was kind of that was really brilliant. Actually, it was really brilliant to be sort of doing something. You know, with your mate, um, and it, yeah, it was it was good. I mean, um, diff, really different way of working. Um, yeah, and we we did. You know, we got out to Japan with it. That was great. I mean, play. You know, sang sang Love Will Tear Us Apart. You know, with Peter Hook on stage at Summer Sonic. I mean, that's mm. definitely a, a moment to remember. Um, so yeah, it was a really kind of nice experience. Um, but it was, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it was ever, ever, I don't think it was ever, I don't think there was ever really any intent with it, you know, again, you know, I think it was just sort of a, a, a circumstantial thing, I guess. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was good fun. Yeah, it's good so fun. it's not the sort of thing that's built for to last, is it? It's the sort of nah. thing you do for, you do for a period of time while they're all up for it. And then the, you know, Manny then reforms the Stone Roses, you know, yeah. and he's off on that, that sort yeah, of bandwagon yeah, yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that no, that's pretty monumental, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then Jack, I guess there's a link with you. You know, obviously Gary was in a band with Andy Rourke, and then you've been Johnny Marr's drummer for uh, for, for a yeah. number of years. So what what was you know? I imagine probably like me, you grew up on the Smiths and, and Oasis and you know Manchester bands like that. So what was it like to then yeah. be in a band with I imagine probably one of your heroes from kind of growing up, right? Well, yeah, it was kind of strange, and as Gary mentioned, obviously we met Johnny 
you know, when, when we're doing that Haven album. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. Um, and he was just, uh, like, like Gary said, he, he, he just loves music. And he tried to, he would be at the drums, the bass or the guitar. He would, he would try and, you know, try and make things sat. So it was almost like, it was almost like rehearsing anyway, almost in a way, you know, in Haven, he'd come in and say, you know, why don't you try those drums there? Why don't you try that, you know, bass part there? Try that, you know, guitar there. So in a weird way, I kind of, I kind of almost imagine what it, it'd be like to be in a band with him, you know, anyway. So I think it was 2000 and, uh, yeah, 2012, I got the call. Uh, basically for, for that, uh, you know, which was through Joe, again, because Joe Moss was managing Johnny then. Mm. Um, I, was, I was actually working at, at the time. I'd, you know, just got a full-time job. And so, you know, believe it or not, you know, the phone call came and it was like, well, you know, I'm going to give this normal normal life up again and I'm mm. going to, mm. you know, start this band. And obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously that was the best decision made, but it was, that's, uh, you know, yeah, that was, uh, 2012 and it's still going strong now so so what what were you doing rather than being a musician at the time or was it was it kind of music related what you were doing no i was working in it i was working full-time in you know kind of it support and you know it was just that monday to friday thing and you know i had mm. weekends free and i think if you, you know when i was doing that you know it kind of became this you know all oh, right you know this is all right so you know but obviously when I got the call off Joe, it was initially just, just to do the album at first, but then, you know, that kind of, you know, you know, that turned into the live band as well, you know, which is obviously great. So that had been The Messenger, and I guess yeah. I, I guess I wonder, like, why did it take Johnny Marr so long to do a solo album? You know, obviously he did the stuff with The Healers, but, you know, Morrissey was straight on the solo train straight after the Smith split, but Johnny, yeah. it took him so long to kind of, I don't know, find that, whether it was the confidence he, or whatever it was, you know. I think it was that. I think he just had, you know, all these other things he wanted to do first. You know, he kind of wanted to be a guitarist in, you know, the Cribs for a while, and then he wanted to be mm. on his mouse. And, uh, you know, he did, he obviously did, he did. Yeah, you know, he did electronic. Did and record, yeah. So he's done, he's done so many great things. And then he obviously just thought, you know, 2012 was the right time. And you've played on all of all of his kind of albums since and toured with him. But I believe yeah. um, I believe he's he's been in the studio recently on kind of a fourth album, and he's due. If you yeah. look at the the years, he's kind of due to release another one soon. So have you been working yeah, yeah. on? We've been working on that. Yeah, I'm I'm actually in, I'm actually going tomorrow, uh, basically to finish the drums off on that. So we've done uh, I think we've done over, it's either twelve or maybe thirteen tracks now, and I've got another three to do uh, tomorrow, and then at some point it's going to be, you know, released um, this year, I think, but, you know, everything's just been thrown up into the air with COVID, uh, obviously, but um, I, I think the plan is, is to get it out, basically. And how's it sounding? Because, I mean, you know, this isn't just like a vanity project, then. these are genuinely brilliant albums. I think The Right Thing Right is one of the kind of most underrated yeah. songs of like the last 10 years. I can't believe this isn't like one of those kind of indie anthems of the last... Sort yeah. of 10 years. How's the sound evolved on, on this record? Can right. you tell us anything about that? It's, it's funny, he wrote, he's, you know, when Johnny writes, he, he really goes to town, he, he writes, he's, I think he's maybe written 25 songs for this, and, and then he kind of just has, you know, he has to choose the best, you know, the best group for, you know, the album, but it's it's kind of a real, a real mixture of all the albums we've, we've done, basically, and, 
you know, but there's a few surprises in this one as well, I think, you know, which is good. But also that unmistakable Johnny Marr guitar sound that couldn't oh, yeah. be anyone else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just, in fact, one of the ones I'm, I'm going to do tomorrow is, has got that sound all over it. Mm. So, because I don't even play guitar, but I still find myself on YouTube watching Johnny Marr how to play certain songs videos. Like, that's how good he is, that you can even just sit and watch for half an hour on, well, these chords I would never yeah. know how to play. But, you know, that, that's, I think that's a level of obsession he probably drives in his fans, you know? You know well, it is a, you know, it is a weird feeling because, you know, you did touch on, on me being kind of growing up on that music. But if you think about it, I was probably just, just a bit too young, really, to, to be in, you know, Kind of the 80s, I wasn't obviously, I wasn't, you know, I was born in 81, but obviously I wasn't in the 80s to, you know, listen to, you know, that music. So, so some of the fans, when you see how much Johnny means to them, you know, when you've done a gig and you come outside, you know, it is quite an amazing thing. No, absolutely, absolutely. And that, that probably brings us kind of back round, I guess, to sort of the now. You're talking about you're going to the studio tomorrow, but obviously Haven being back and I always kind of I want to kind of conclude just by talking about that really so my understanding is all I know of it is there's one gig booked for night and day but is there is there more than that and if if it is one gig kind of what's what's the plan really like fill me in because I genuinely don't know what the what the plan is with this other than you're reforming for a gig yeah I think that's right the gig yeah it's the gig um we're doing one gig one gig on the Friday the uh, 2nd of uh, July the, the night and day basically Nicely put, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, no, no, no grand plans. I mean, it's it just seems like, as I say, we've we've sort of back in touch. We've been back in touch a while. You know, twenty years on, COVID. You know, I just I don't know. It's just something about it. it just feel it feels like the right thing to do. Um, actually, and yeah, there's no there's no grand designs at all, other than. Yeah, just sort of getting back and um, yeah, and, and having a bit of a bit of a party, yeah. But you get back on that night and day stage. The place is sold out. You see all your old mates. Yeah. Well, do you think there'll be any itch to say, well, you know, we could could do a few more of these? Yeah, I mean, if if, if it all goes if, if it all goes well and, and we all enjoy it, then then yeah, why not? Um, I mean, I'd I'd personally like love to see the, the you know the the third album. <clears throat> come out but obviously we're all so busy with other things i just don't know but, but um, never say never jack yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and, and are you still writing gary obviously you wrote most of the songs for, for well for the, for the two albums my understanding was it was mostly your writing so you're still writing now do you have material sometimes that you think oh that could be that could be a haven track if the band were back together uh, yeah i mean the, the right the writing was a was was a was an absolute collaboration you know um and I, I did listen you know i was listening back to um listening back actually i had a bit of a, a clean up on my itunes and um there's a song called all i ever knew which um i mean i won't get anywhere near the notes on that anymore unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a really really great song and there's a, there are some there's some really nice bits and pieces that would be yeah it'd be really great to sort of go back and finish um but it's like jack said really i think um yeah, just let's just kind of let it unfold and see how how we all feel about it. It'll be really nice to sort of be back in there, you know, and um, yeah, sort of back where it all started. Um, and yeah, just um, well, I mean, we we're hoping that's the case anyway. I mean, who who knows what's going to happen between now and then, um, you know? But the, the, it's in the diary. Um, Jay Taylor's very kindly offered us some, a place to rehearse, so 
um, I just got to sort some guitar strings out and um, we'll see where we get to. <laughs> Sounds great. And yeah, listeners, if you're in the Manchester area this summer, uh, or even if you're not, travel up, go to the gig. You know, we'll put the details of the tickets and stuff when they're available kind of in the uh, description. But otherwise, yeah, it's been, it's been a great trip down, uh, down memory lane tonight, lads. Oh, nice one. Thanks for having us. It's good to see you again. Yeah, and you. Good luck with the gig. Yeah, cheers, cheers. guys. Cheers. See you later. Bye-bye. See you later. I have to say, Rick, I think we've talked about this before, but I loved Top of the Pops when I was younger and I always had a dream to be on it. And it's uh, sadly no longer. But I loved hearing all about that. That that to me was the highlight of the interview with them talking about that. Yeah, and the amazing thing is they didn't seem to be able to remember too much of it, you know, other than because it was kind of a whirlwind at the time, you know, and I, I imagine, you know, I don't know about you, Sarah, if I if I'd been on top of the pots 15 years ago, I'd be getting that YouTube clip out, you know, every few days and showing the kids and showing the relatives and kind of showing your mates at work because yeah, it was such a, it's almost hard to explain maybe to younger music fans now how top of the pots was just the center of the musical universe that week, wasn't it? If a band was on top of the pops they'd gone to kind of a different level of, of fame, I guess, particularly if you're a guitar band. I, I always used to think it was like a real victory if a guitar band that you liked had managed to get onto Top of the Pops. I remember the guitar bands on Top of the Pops, probably more than the pop stars, actually, which is funny. Like, that'd be a good question for you, because I'll tell you mine. What's the performance you remember most on Top of the Pops? Do you want to hear mine first, or do you want to tell me yours first? No, you tell me yours first. Go on. It's a real... It's what a bit out there. It's trash by Suede. Okay. Absolutely. I just remember Brett winging his way around the stage. I think he might have even had a tambourine or something. And just seeing like how much fun he was having was just so um, you know, inspiring and contagious. Like it was just so good. But it's a bit of a yeah, a bit of a crazy one because I wasn't a massive. I mean, I quite quite like Suede but you know they weren't one of my favorite bands by any stretch of the, man- the imagination but they just had a really good kind of visual performance on there what about you yeah but I think you make a good point there that even though you weren't a fan of that band you know that was that was the window for when I say mainstream music fans I'm not saying you weren't into guitar stuff but that was their chance to shine wasn't it that was their chance to catch the attention and I think even in those days like I'm right in thinking if a band let's say a guitar band came on top of the pops because they got in the top 20 or something and then they appeared that week then the sales would go up the week after you know they'd they end up higher in the charts because they'd had that kind of national um exposure so I think that for me what you just described there was kind of the magic of it almost in that it it was the window it was a window into the world of those bands for maybe people who who weren't fans and in terms of I guess and maybe not have one favourite performance, but I think for me it was probably that Britpop era, you know, seeing Blur on there, seeing Oasis. I seem to remember an Oasis performance where I think it was Noel on lead vocals and Liam wasn't, but they switched it around and they switched band members around because they knew the programme wouldn't kind of know anyway. I definitely remember seeing Pulp on there as well and probably similar to... Um, probably similar to Suede in the way that, you know, they kind of grabbed your attention just in the way that, you know, Jarvis Cocker's kind of unique sort of performance style, I guess you could you could call it. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably the era that I remember the most was was that Britpop era and just seeing all those bands that, that went on to become massive favourites. Yeah, and just in the time that you've been talking, Rick, I just got the uh, the Suede trash video up on on YouTube and I was right, Brett is 
banging a tambourine <laughs> very enthusiastically and he's wearing these like amazing like a leather jacket and these amazing sort of like almost bell-bottom trousers oh i wish we i wish the podcast was a visual uh, sometimes because we could show this but youtube that performance because it's just brilliant oh we'll put the link in the description we'll make it even easier for you so you can you can link straight from the description um on on this episode i think another thing that probably came out of this interview for me that i guess reminded me almost of that era and you forget about this now it's just how competitive the music industry was for guitar bands at the time kind of around you know the sort of mid to early 2000s i mean we obviously we've talked about the whole strokes uh, libertines kind of scene at the time white stripes but then the kind of british guitar scene i'd even say with haven it wasn't as competitive for them amongst other indie groups even just amongst indie groups from around the kind of manchester scene you know like star sailor who were from kind of uh warrington sort of wigan way i always forget where exactly where they're from but they're from that kind of part of the world you know elbow doves badly drawn boy you know that's just all from one region of the country and i just don't think it's quite the same now that you have multiple bands with kind of the same similarish kind of influences and playing at the same venues all appearing kind of at the same time but it'd be interesting to see what happens next as we said earlier you know this is a one-off reunion but they've also said you know if it goes well who knows where things will head so um you know let's wait and see kind of what the next chapter in their story is well here's hoping it goes really well and they're not rusty after so many years <laughs> that's always a worry isn't it but i'm sure they're not i'm sure they're gonna get up on that stage and uh, really perform really well so good luck good luck guys yeah so it's july the 2nd at the manchester night and day uh i don't know if tickets are on sale yet if when as and when they do we'll put the uh the link in the description of the episode uh for you to go and buy a ticket i mean the other thing I mean, it's not long after the lifting of lockdown. So what better way if you're in the Manchester area to kind of celebrate the return of gigs than um, seeing one of the classic Manchester bands of the last 25 years? Well, I'm sure there will be a lot of celebrating going on, including the live music industry. So, you know, I'm excited to go to a gig, a gig of any sort, to be honest. Actually, my friend uh, went to the Brits on Tuesday. Uh, she works for the NHS and there was a, an audience of 4000 people. Absolutely no social distancing clearly a um you know a trial into into live events this summer but she was she you know she was telling me all about it yesterday and I was just like this just feels like a different world right now it sounds amazing she'd lost her voice she had the time of her life so fingers crossed they come back sooner rather than later mm. so, so I'll be honest with you I wasn't going to talk about the Brits this week I mean good great news for your friend to go because I'm sure it's an amazing thing to go to but I've almost turned into my own dad where I look at the winners of the Brits every year and go God, music's got boring. I can't, I can't, if this if this cannot be the cream of the stuff being released at the moment. But yeah, I've I've gone back on my own promise myself there not to talk about the Brits. And maybe we don't want to fall down that uh, that rabbit hole where I end up sounding about 80. <laughs> don't worry, I didn't actually watch it myself either, Rick. So um, that's why I didn't talk about it either. But in terms of, you know, I am not, not wasn't talking about the Brits as the Brits. I was just talking about being able to go and see kind of live shows and be around people and get that atmosphere again. So Oh, hopefully it happens. But um, yeah, so we, we also want to know if listeners have any lost artists they want us to go and find. You know, might we might not have ever heard of them before, uh, but we're always happy to go and do a bit of digging, aren't we, Rick? Absolutely. Yeah, we can get our uh, magnifying glasses out and follow the trail of breadcrumbs around social media to find them. So, yeah, we're just uh, obviously we've got a list of lost artists we're trying to tick off and go and find and, and hear the kind of what happened next for them but yeah listeners if you have anyone you'd like us to track down do get in touch with the show and again sarah because you know those details so well do you want to give out our social media and, and email details and all of that 
Here we go again. So email demotapespod at gmail.com, social media at demotapespod. Perfect. But again, I guess until next time, thanks for listening and we'll see you for another rewind next time. You see, Sarah, it still lives on. Oh, here we go. Yeah, okay. Maybe we'll fast forward next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>